Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Last month, the World Health Organization quietly announced that it would soon appoint a new chief scientist in 2023, a man named Jeremy Farrar. As part of its press release on Farrar's imminent appointment, the WHO stated that Farrar will be focused on, quote, bringing together the best brains in science and innovation from around the world to develop and deliver high-quality health services to the people who need them most, no matter who they are and where they live. However, Farrar's history and his recent role as head of the Wellcome Trust suggests that Farrar's appointment to a top post at the who bodes poorly for global health and is instead suggestive of who ambitions to become a supranational organization that promotes the interests of big pharma and increasingly big tech to the detriment of public health. The announcement of Farrar's appointment comes at an interesting time for the WHO, as the organization is currently involved in secret negotiations to amend the international health regulations. Those amendments, if approved by WHO member states, would give the WHO unprecedented power to declare a public health emergency and also to dictate to member states what measures they must implement as a result of that emergency. It would also establish a framework to normalize and entrench vaccine passports and other biosecurity surveillance practices, while also exempting these regulations from respecting human rights and the fundamental freedoms of the populations of WHO member states. With such unprecedented power, a man like Jeremy Farrar, who has consistently supported unscientific biosecurity measures throughout the COVID crisis, would be able to dictate to most of the world what public health policies must be implemented and when. Adding to these issues is the recent pandemic simulation hosted by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which previously hosted controversial simulations, including 2001's Dark Winter and 2019's Event 201. This new simulation, called Catastrophic Contagion, focused largely on Africa and on the WHO's role in shaping global and regional pandemic responses. It, of course, included considerable involvement from Bill Gates, whose foundation wields a significant and troubling amount of influence over World Health Organization policy. Joining me today to discuss this and more is Johnny Vedmore. Johnny is an investigative journalist who contributes to Unlimited Hangout and maintains his own websites at johnnyvedmore.com and funkymonkey.com. He has previously written at length about Jeremy Farrar and the Wellcome Trust and has been a consistent critic of their health policies, particularly as they pertain to the COVID-19 response. So welcome back to Unlimited Hangout. How's it going, Johnny? Yeah, it's good. I just got out of the Unlimited Hangout sweatshops after writing stories oh. and, uh, <laughs> and articles, and now I'm, now I'm here, here for a good discussion about someone dipping Jeremy Farrar. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get into Jeremy Farrar. So the press release announcing Farrar's appointment was issued on December 13th uh, of last month, uh, probably at a time when a lot of people are getting ready uh, for Christmas. I know I didn't see it because it happened right around my daughter's birthday, so I wasn't paying much attention. So uh, it took uh, independent media a while to pick up on this, but it's very significant. And I'm really glad you're here today, John, because out of uh, independent media, I don't really know of anyone who's written more about Farrar or the Wellcome Trust uh, than you. So let's see here and how this press release describes uh, Farrar. They say uh, Farrar is a clin clinician scientist who, before joining the Wellcome Trust in 2013, spent 17 years as director of the clinical research unit at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in Vietnam. Uh, they oddly omit the fact that I believe his uh, directorship there was funded by Wellcome and uh, affiliated with the University of Oxford. 
for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, also interesting is that they say uh, that under Dr. Farrar, the Wellcome Trust has taken an increasingly global outlook, focusing on funding discovery research projects to transform the understanding of life, health, and well-being, and uh, focusing on three urgent challenges, those being infectious disease, mental health, and the effects of climate change on health. And I think some of this, uh, what they're referring to here, is a reference to Welcome Leap, which I wrote about in 2021, and I'm sure we can discuss later. So, uh, Johnny, what exactly is the who leaving out about Jeremy Farrar? Why uh, does he matter? And what is uh, suspect to you about his background, if what, anything? What I, what I found really interesting about Jeremy Farrar is I was studying him. And I, I, I mean, everybody, anybody who knows my work knows I, I tend to go back in history. I tend to go back through time and try and find um, the route to everybody's, uh, like, uh, where they become famous, where they become uh, professional, where they become influential, um, where the power lies, and who who gave them that the, those opportunities. And from very early on, um, Farrar was obviously noted as really important. And you, you, you're right to mention um, uh, Welcome and Oxford combination, because it was a 1994 uh, program being run uh, out of Oxford by Welcome, a joint project that saw Jeremy Farrar enter into um, becoming, or start off becoming uh, the head of uh, the Welcome Trust. And this was at a time when the Welcome Trust was really a kind of newly forged entity out of uh, the Welcome um, PLC and Welcome uh, had be, always been a private company um, and suddenly became this uh, kind of unaccountable, um, uh, not-for-profit sort of uh, look about it on the cover. But when you dig away underneath, it seemed like a good way. Uh, there was a guy behind it, a, a very important man called Richard uh, Sykes, who was the head of uh, Glaxo. Um, and he was involved in the merger of Glaxo, uh, uh, Smith, Klein, Beecham, and the Welcome, uh, Welcome PLC, and they put he put them all together, and out of it came the Welcome Trust as this non-profit entity, uh, Glaxo, Smith, Klein, and Beecham's as a separate company, and so you had these the, the, this this uh, new forming of the Welcome brand. And it's really interesting because if you go back beforehand, just beforehand, they um welcome are very involved in uh the HIV medication and a lot of other things. Well, a AZT. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit because I think that's um pretty relevant to uh why the Welcome Trust is um not the medical research nonprofit, you know, that's objective and blah blah blah. I mean, it's often treated in very uh, glowing terms, but as you as you noted, it's an outgrowth of what was previously uh, Welcome PLC, and before that, I believe was Burroughs Welcome, and they were uh, the entity, the company that produced AZT, uh, for, which was an early HIV treatment, uh, which uh, essentially killed people. Yeah, they seem yeah. to be more reckless with advertising um, uh, AZT over in America. Uh, through Burroughs Welcome, which was their American arm, they seemed to be more reckless. And in Britain, they were much more careful. But um, it, it, it was uh, Roy Anderson, uh, another one of, um, well, he was a Welcome Trust director in the early 90s. Before he joined the Welcome Trust, he was uh, he was very 
all of the guys who revolve around Farrar are very shady figures. They've got lots of different attachments uh, to different groups and different societies um, that are really, I think, important to unraveling this massive puzzle. And there was a very small group at the time of the early 90s uh, that helped form this new, you know, because the AZT had been such bad publicity. And, of course, it was going to be loads of uh, uh, court cases um, uh, brought against Welcome if it stayed in its form that it was in at that time. And so I think that's why it was like uh, Rich Sykes come in to, to, to dismantle it and change what what it was what each of these companies were doing he was brought in to do that uh, Richard Sykes is a very interesting man who I'll talk about later but I would I would describe him as probably the man who uh, recruited and mentored uh, people like Roy Anderson uh, Farrar Neil Ferguson and the famous people who the people who would be brought to fame uh, mainly on the British side now a lot of uh, uh, Americans, when they started a lot of uh, American press, and of course I'm writing for Unlimited Hangout, and and uh, I'm watching a lot of the time what the uh, American media are saying, and a lot of the independent American media wanted to concentrate on Fauci and, and, and other people who were involved in the American side of the process. But when you actually see, um, like, the BuzzFeed emails uh, that, that got released, you, you discover that Jeremy Farrar was above the American, the, you know, Jeremy Farrar is above uh, Fauci in the chain of command, and this is really important. They don't, people don't understand why, and it's because Britain is used as this uh, tool. It's like a a little special secretive tool that the Americans have on the side, while the Americans are, are producing um, lots of uh, policies that will um, are, are dystopian in nature and will trap you into. Um, medical uh, sort of organizations and institutions that will trap you into uh, you, your your nation into doing things a certain way. Well, a lot of the actual control structure, the implementation, a lot of that comes from Britain. So Richard Sykes, the man who kind of inspired these guys, was the guy was the guy who oversaw the entire rollout of the vaccines in the UK uh, when the COVID vaccines come out. Je uh, okay, Jeremy well, Farrar. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it might be helpful to get into a lot of the stuff that's more recent uh okay. in a little bit i think it's it's probably good first before we get too far away from it uh to discuss farrar's background specifically um you know the type of family he was born into and what his history was before he sort of teamed up with this uh welcome trust and it's 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 more you know it's broader network yeah so what can you tell me about uh, earlier, Farrar and some of his experience, for example, at this Vietnam hospital and, and things, you know, a little bit before he joined the Welcome Trust. Yeah, well, it, it, that was that was him already kind of joining the Welcome Trust because in 1994, this program's being run out of Oxford, and that's uh, he's just graduating from Oxford. There, he's just done his masters at Oxford, and Edward uh, C. Holmes, who's of course the the man who's down for a Nobel Prize alongside the Chinese scientists for doing the first transcription for for uh, writing out the first transcription of. Um, 
of SARS-CoV-2 uh, genetic sequence. Um, he was running this program out of Oxford Welcome. Edward C. Holmes was running the program and asked uh, Jeremy Farrar to um, be part of the project. And along came Jeremy Farrar and he instantly, he says, you know, it was by by just a, uh, I went across to um, Ho Chi Minh to just do a, a little bit of research and, and I ended up staying there 18 years. So so he, he, he through that time, from 1994 onwards, Jeremy Farrar has been writing many papers, doing a lot of research. And um, if you actually read a lot of that research, it, it relies on the infrastructure of information uh, that we have at the moment. It, by that I mean um, PCR tests. We understand a little bit about how uh, cycle thresholds work, and the higher the cycle threshold on the PCR test, um, the more uh, the more likely you are to get a positive or a false positive result. Well, a lot of Jeremy Farrar's work seems to uh, test uh, uh, test drugs out on high cycle thresholds. Um, uh, a lot of it relies on the narratives that were created around COVID. And um, he's traveled all the way around the world. Now, when he was, he was born into a really interesting family. Um, his father had been caught as a um, uh, one of the many soldiers in France during World War II and had been sent to a camp, a prisoner of war camp. And he had remained in the prisoner of war camp the entire time. And he had met his mother. He had met Jeremy Farrar's mother um, when he had got back from being released uh, after marching for days and days. Um, they finally got picked up by the, the British, sent back. They got sent to Scotland. And he was driven down to the Ministry of Defence to be debriefed by his future wife. So he would meet his wife, who was the actual driver. Um, I mean, a lot of women did a lot of those sort of tasks, worked in the factory, kept the home fires burning, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And um, that's where they met. And it is, it's an interesting link that it, it, it comes as he goes into the Ministry of Defence to give information about his time in captivity. Because after that, he becomes what uh, Jeremy Farrar later calls, and like he calls his family, itinerant in nature. So he, he says that they travelled around a lot. So they lived everywhere. Cyprus, they lived in Libya, they lived Far East. Um, I mean, Farrar was born in Singapore. And he is the youngest of, I think there was six um, children uh, to, uh, that Eric Farrar and his wife um, had including Jeremy um, and there's there's a lot I, I mean there's a, you can go even further back in the history I'm currently looking at, at certain people who may be members of his family who have identical lives to the, what Jeremy Farrar has but back in Victorian times so I you know there's there's, there's there, I, I believe that it's a family history that's really interesting but his family his father the traveling around it seems very uh, emblematic of someone who was at least working um, with the state, with the British uh, in some way. I haven't been able to find uh, full proof of that yet. But you can see by people like um, Jeremy Farrar, his direction has been one where he's been allowed into top schools. He's progressed uh, in his career to uh, levels that no one else can possibly have. And a lot of us, when we do our research into these famous and big players, these really, really important people, well, they all tend to have um, links, familial links that are really important. Um, and 
Jeremy Farrar, when he was recruited in 1994, he instantly went across to an area of the world where he could do a, a, a tests and experiments uh, that he wouldn't be able to necessarily do in the West. And that's another point that is often missed out. Uh, a lot of the time, the the drugs by um, people like Welcome and uh, in the past, and uh, many of the pharmaceutical companies, sorry, um, many of these entities, they get tested on in poorer on poorer yeah, nations. Southeast Asia, Africa. Yeah, and and that, that's where you've seen that, that's where you you saw him spend a lot of his time, and a lot yeah. of his papers are written around there, and some of the early, I mean. When you get on to the time when he's looking for avian flu in the noughties, um... right? So let's 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 wait there, uh, wait uh, for a second because I I wanted to sort of um <clears throat> before you get into that I just wanted to mention um that not only do you have this avian flu thing that you just touched on, but uh, as you've previously written about Farrar, you know uh, that he was essentially sent by Oxford, which is again running the hospital that he's you know ostensibly a director at. Uh, at this period of time, they're sending him around the world to specifically study epidemics or pandemics as they're happening in, in real time. Yeah. So can you go into some of that history, including well, the avian flu and some of the others? Well, there's some really interesting. I mean, a lot of the other people, when you follow a lot of the other people, too, they have this similar, uh, they get picked up and they get given their um, place within this puzzle they get given their their job and role so these people they're selecting the highest candidates jeremy farrar is obviously seen as a very uh, successful candidate uh for uh, the future and w what he does is study um lots of lots of different really complicated um uh, illnesses and potential uh vaccines it was from 1996 until 2013 um, that Farrar is like recorded as being the director of what's called the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City. So it's Oxford partnering, uh, partnering with the Wellcome Trust to set up a research facility um, in Ho Chi Minh City. And there's a lot of, you know, the actual, um, by the time it, get, it gets around to 2009 and bird flu, uh, and you've got, uh, I mentioned like um, an article uh, that was published in a Rockefeller, Rockefeller University uh, Press Journal of Experimental Medicine in 2009. So obviously there's nice people keeping an eye on what Jeremy Farrar is doing. And, uh, um, it, and it's uh, a quote that it's, it's titled um, Jeremy Farrar When um, Disaster Strikes. And Farrar talks about the finding of a bird of of of, of a bird flu of an avian flu, um, and it's a really interesting like narrative he sets because he sets this narrative where the WHO people turned up, the the World Health Organization people, and they tested um, the, this kid, and and they said no, they don't have SARS or avian influenza, they've just got a cold, and they left. But Jeremy Farrar's not happy with that. He and Professor Hien go and they, they test out the girl again and they do some more explorations and they discover this is a rare bird flu and they, they need to start some form of a, a epidemic response or pandemic response um, to uh, this form of influenza A that they find uh, in, in this guy. And it's believed, they give this backstory, the girl found a dead duck that she liked 
and so she buried it in the garden but her brother decided to bury it somewhere else and then she dug it up again and buried it somewhere else and that's how she got it and and but it seemed like the experts came in did the test and when you actually uh look at what the local government health board say uh around the time because uh, this happens in somewhere in asia um and they they said no I, I we don't think there was anything there but they they convinced everybody uh, even the who said there was nothing there but suddenly jeremy farrar finds things you know he's that mm -hmm. type of person and then he sets a narrative and that narrative goes on and everybody gets behind it right gets in in that particular occasion that narrative set by farrar but rejected by the who was parroted extensively by the george w bush administration in the united states uh, which fear-mongered excessively about it said millions were going to die and that the only um if i recall the the countermeasure, the medical countermeasure they invested in as a result of that fear-mongering uh, was Tamiflu, which is made by Gilead, uh, a pharmaceutical company that was very much tied up with, still at the time, the finances of Donald Rumsfeld, who before being Secretary of Defense um, in the Bush administration had been the top executive at Gilead and was still invested in that company. And so he made like an insane amount of money. And then, of course, it turns out that all of that um, Fearmongering, which I guess in in this instance seems to have started with Farrar, um, ended up to be inaccurate, right? Yeah. And you know it sort of collapsed, and no one really remembers the bird flu scare of 2004, 2005 anymore, except for those of us that you know in the past three years have sort of been looking back at some of this history, like I know I did when I was looking at uh, the dark winter exercise, the anthrax and stuff. The, the bird flu was sort of a a subsequent attempt at that by similar actors involved with a lot of this anthrax stuff that ended up yep. um, going awry. And it's interesting to see Farrar there. But at that time, the who was saying was disagreeing with him. But now Farrar is set to be the top guy, uh, top scientist at the who. Right. Mm -hmm. And it seems like sometime between 2004, 2005, when that happened and the COVID crisis, uh, Farrar's uh, importance to the World Health Organization uh, changed a lot. So as you previously wrote, one of the so-called Fauci emails that I guess was published by BuzzFeed, what you referred to earlier as the BuzzFeed emails, mm -hmm. um, an email sent by um, a, a top person at the World Health Organization referred to Jeremy Farrar's official role as, uh, quote, to act as the boards, the who boards. Focal point on the COVID-19 outbreak to represent and advise the board on the science of the outbreak and the financing of the response. And Farrar had previously chaired the WHO's Scientific Advisory Council. And again, this is all um, absent from the WHO's press release about Farrar. It doesn't mention um, that he had this top role at the WHO for COVID-19, oddly enough. You anyway, can, your thoughts? You, you, can see, you can see through uh, Farrar's progression, though, um, and the way he wrote his pe papers, that he was very politically minded in the world of international medical response. Very politically minded. So, I mean, it, 2004 and 2009, I can't remember which one um, Neil Ferguson said that, that 200 million people would die. And it was like 
in the thousands of people would die actually died um but these guys used this sort of fear mongering to get more work in a sense um so Farrar sure. from 2009 he and 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 that that finding the 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 girl with the duck and everybody else saying she was fine um he he was sent around by Oxford to various locations so he sent um to look at the outbreak of MERS uh, of course he's central to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and avian flu in 2014 too. Um, it's really interesting to, to see how he became like this central figure uh, being lifted up. I think some of these guys are just like that. They are really important to the, the uh, emblematic to the the and their views are politically politically minded and suit the prevailing narrative of people of organizations like the who and other health, big health organizations who want people like this but is it a case that they uh encourage the training of people to to be like this and then promote the people to be like this or is it that farrar is this um person that they they there's just come out of nowhere because i just don't believe that i really think there's a a bigger history to Jeremy Farrar and he, his importance uh, as you say the BuzzFeed emails I mean they they were talking about um, uh, him being uh, responsible for everything from financing to advising to uh, writing up and then they write the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2 he's the main guy organizing within 10 days the production of a paper that falsified the root of a virus uh, that, that has caused so much devastation on economies, on people's lives. And yeah, on, and, and of course that paper lives. has since been debunked and this was arguing that it was of a zoonotic origin. They even wrote to... a second paper though. Mm -hmm. They even wrote a second paper where they were like, oh, we, we're writing this one because everybody's debunked the other one. Oh, we come to the same conclusions again. And what's uh, what's completely uh, amazing yeah. about that is that if you actually hear what what was being said um, at the time, uh, like what what Jeremy Farrar was and and others were doing during um, those periods. Now let me let me just quote. I've I've opened up um uh, a uh, it's a line from Jeremy Farrar's book that he published, um, or a. a apart uh, from Jeremy Farrar's book that he published uh, during the COVID pandemic. And he says, uh, by the second week of January, I was beginning this January 2020, I was beginning to realize the scale of what was happening. In those weeks, I became exhausted and scared. I felt as if I was living a different person's life. During that period, I would do things I've never done before, acquire a burner phone, hold clandestine meetings, keep difficult secrets. In the last week of January 2020, I saw email chatter from scientists in the US suggesting the virus looked almost engineered to infect human cells. These were credible scientists proposing an incredible and terrifying possibility of either accidental leak from a laboratory or deliberate release. Now, we, we, already, uh, we already know that, that this was a release, but this idea that, that it was incredible, that, oh, this is impossible, and then they, he created, this. he's saying this happened in January 2020, and then he created all of the hoo-ha, he created all of uh, the, 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 the fake pandemic paper, he covered it up, and then he admitted that he covered it up in that one 
uh, part of his book. So I, it seems like Jeremy Farrar thinks he's completely untouchable or he's completely and utterly dumb to a level that that I, I can't even understand, you know? I can't, I can't understand how we can't see how that, um, the idea that clandestine methods, burner phones and all of this, how that people can't, won't say, what were you doing? Why were you being so secretive? Why were you, this is a public health matter. But it yeah, seems why like... Why are his emails so heavily redacted? Yeah. Why is his email <laughs> When they so were really specifically he... his input relative to those of other people. Yeah. Uh, just very bizarre. Um, so thanks for that. One thing that, um, I wanted to talk about briefly that you brought up is the Ebola situation in 24, from 2014 to 2015 in West Africa. So I actually came across an article I found very interesting when I was writing about the developers of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, again, that they're based at Oxford University. And, and I found a lot of very odd parallels um, of what happened with COVID-19's vaccine rollout and the attempt attempted vaccine rollout here um, in 2014. And of course, the experimental vaccine in the case of Ebola was GlaxoSmithKline, which, as you mentioned earlier, has a very uh, close relationship with the Wellcome Trust. And uh, the Wellcome Trust is, I believe, very much responsible for leading a significant portion of the international response to this Ebola crisis during this period of time. And I just want to read some uh, quotes here from this article that was published about the crisis, why it was ongoing by The Guardian, the UK newspaper. Um, and it just sounds so much like what we ended up hearing during the COVID crisis. I mean, it's almost analogous. Um, so anyway, it's it reads, uh, human trials of uh, GlaxoSmithKline's experimental vaccine, which Britain's largest pharmaceuticals company is developing with the US NIH are to be fast-tracked with funding from an international consortium. Vaccines normally take 10 years to develop, but GlaxoSmithKline said it hopes to finish the first phase of trials by the end of 2014. For reference, this was published in August 2014. It will start making up to 10,000 doses of the vaccine at the same time as the initial clinical trials so that if they prove successful, stock can be made av available immediately to the World Health Organization. And then goes on to say, um, if regulatory approvals are granted, the UK research teams could start vaccinating healthy volunteers from mid-September. So this is about a month after this article is published. And in the US, the NIH could start phase one trials, which is test on humans, um, as soon as next week after receiving the green light from the FDA. The vaccine has already shown promising results, blah, blah, blah. Uh, a 2.8 million pound grant from the Wellcome Trust will fund safety tasks by a team led by Professor Adrian Hill, director of the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford, with Adrian Hill uh, being the man who produced, uh, along with uh, Sarah Gilbert, who I think was his student at one point, uh, produced the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which of course has uh, been quite controversial, taken off the market in numerous countries, um, and has uh, been listed as the cause of death on several death certificates in uh, the UK alone. And he previously uh, spoke at the Galton Institute. His mentor was a member of the Galton Institute, which until 1989 was the British Eugenics Society. And he's a Hill is very much associated uh, with the Wellcome Trust. What I find interesting about this is that when we had the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, this same narrative was rolled out again about uh, speeding up 
the vaccines and not using the normal 10-year process, but it was framed like this had never happened before. But in fact, it had happened before, about seven, six years prior. And central in this was GlaxoSmithKline and the Wellcome Trust and the National Institutes of Health, uh, several players who were obviously, as we've just talked about, instrumental in the COVID response. Yeah. Have any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Patrick Valance um, did a lot of the res- uh, um, uh, public face of the response in the UK, and he he was seen as kind of disconnected because you know the GlaxoSmithKline aren't necessarily um, uh, making a vaccine, so you don't. They're kind of impartial. They've made this big uh, pharmaceutical giant that's you know would happily break the law of this this impartial kind figure. Um, but if you if you criticize him, especially on Twitter and the like, you'll find yourself censored pretty quickly. I, I, I've experienced that. I, the longest ban I've had on Twitter is for saying something about Patrick Palance. Um, now, there's a lot when you talk because you started talking about um, uh, Ebola and there's a lot of crossover between these characters in the UK and um the people who were working uh on ebola that were american so like pardis sabetti um who worked she got links with farrar uh with edward holmes um with other people like debbie shridhar and andrew rambo um they're both from uh edinburgh university if i remember correctly um and they were all uh Quite heavily involved in the Ebola crisis, I think that was a really important moment when um, a lot of the uh, the the big world order of medicine was starting to be created to a level that they would be able to enact what happened during COVID nineteen. You know, they didn't have the power before. From all of my research, what I saw is every time they tried to spark some sort of pandemic here or some sort of pandemic there, some fear uh, mongering, that they would ha- they would hit a brick wall every time with people going, yeah, whatever, whatever. The people were old enough to remember uh, bad bad vaccines of the past and and all of the things of the past, so they're not they're not going to get involved in 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 doing any of this. So they they've tried to push these ideas of vaccines out, and it's never been successful. But but now people are really have been primed for this. It's almost like, oh, we, we, we've got to keep introducing these new things all of the time that everybody's going to take to get people used to the idea of taking stuff. That's simply what it is. It's uh, very much like, uh, and, and when I talked about um, Pardis Sabeti, who's a really interesting figure, um, she she was, she was studied at both Harvard and Oxford, uh, two places where I end up a lot in my research when looking into this new world. She's a Rhodes Scholar as well. You know, she's right up there, uh, cream of the crop. She's got links with Elon Musk and Eric Lander. These people are the transhumanists. These people are the people who are trying to create the agenda that means that you're going to keep having your body pumped full of something until that something is no longer medicine. It's something else and then something else. And then we're primed to say, okay, the next one, we got this ill health, a bit bit of ill health or or this fear of a virus. Now, Ebola is perfect for for making people afraid because Ebola, the people's idea of Ebola is it spreads terribly. Everybody dies. You're bleeding out your eyes and all your orifices. You know, they really scared it. And that's why I think they all came together around that and really started to work on plans of how to make other illnesses seem as scary as Ebola 
because Ebola had that special. It was like yeah. Well, in 2019, well. you had you had Anthony Fauci saying stuff like, "Well, we can't. We haven't had a lot of excess with a universal flu vaccine or any of the stuff because people aren't scared enough of the mm -hmm. flu." or of respiratory illnesses or seasonal respiratory illnesses and basically implied that in order to ensure the success of those type of vaccination programs, which for the past two decades have been heavily funded by, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and related organizations, um, essentially what needed to happen is that people needed to become afraid of those diseases yeah. in order to spur uh, vaccination. The only way you can make people uh, afraid is, is either you release a virus from the lab where you see people die, Okay, that's one way you make people afraid, or you lie to them. You know, in this, in this particular, when it comes down to viruses, either one of two ways. Very rarely, it's one in a hundred years should we get something that's probably um, a pandemic, and that's based on uh, maths. That well, we've had a load since humans have started gain of function research and started testing on their people and started releasing viruses. So we've had loads of, you know, we've had yeah, loads I, of And this is something the US military's done, that Porton down in the UK has done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it's been a very extensive but largely unseen uh, series of operations over the past century or so uh, regarding bioweaponry. Uh, and its use on unsuspecting civilians. I mean, it, there's just it, an insane amount of examples of that happening uh, that a lot of people don't know very much about. And it's probably not surprising um, that they don't at this point, considering, you know, how people have behaved over the past uh, several years. So anyway, you mentioned a lot about um, how this seems to be leading to transhumanism and all of that. So maybe now is a good time to get into something um, that Jeremy Farrar created as uh, apparently as uh, a response to covid so remember he's as i mentioned earlier the world health organization is saying that jeremy farrar is essentially one of their is the top guy for them as it relates to the covid-19 outbreak as it relates to the science of the outbreak and the financing of the response and what he does through welcome as you know he's director of the welcome trust at this point his part of the response at Welcome Trust is to create Welcome Leap. Welcome Leap, uh, he ostensibly envisioned uh, would uh, create, would launch, quote, unconventional projects funded at scale. And basically, uh, it was, a, an, at least the way I wrote about it, it was an obvious attempt uh, to create a global version of DARPA. Why do I say it was DARPA? Because he put former DARPA directors in charge of it. And the people, specifically the lady he put in charge of it is Regina Dugan, who was a director of DARPA and greenlighted DARPA's funding of the mRNA injections that have since uh, become more or less normalized over the COVID-19 crisis. And then um, after she left DARPA, she went to Google and subsequently to Facebook, where she set up DARPA equivalent DARPA style organizations uh, for both of those companies. And then she's headhunted from Facebook to uh, run Welcome Leap, where she essentially is creating a DARPA equivalent for the Welcome Trust. Yeah. Yeah. And Jay Flatley as well, which is, uh, I mean, he was a the gene sequencing guy. So now, pretty much. Oh. He's really, just Flatley is really important to this because he's the head of Illumina. And Illumina will make nearly every single machine, nearly every single machine that runs PCR tests. 
that well, is that genomically sequence yeah. uh, sequences PCR tests. Well, that's massively like, important yeah. mm-hmm. to 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 if you wanted to uh, falsify results, you need to be the person who keeps the results. That's it. Sure, but in addition to that, um, Jay Flatley has a, an obsession essentially with gen- the genetic sequencing you from birth to death and having genomic sequencing be uh, mandatory uh, throughout various stages of life. And uh, what he, what most people in, the, in, in this world, these people were talking about and have it, they refer to it as precision medicine, which is really more like gene-specific medicine. And um, he was, for uh, example, example, speaking at a World Economic Forum panel, which interestingly enough, uh, he was speaking at alongside Matt Hancock, who was then uh, UK health secretary. And he was promoting all the uh, the ideas of normalizing the genomic sequencing um, of babies and children, uh, trying to, he claims this was about shifting healthcare system from reactive to preventative. Uh, but, the, you know, in, if for people familiar with my work, there is this huge um, theme of the national security state, the military and the intelligence communities uh, trying to basically create, use the pre-crime appro- approach uh, but apply it to medicine. So, um, you know, for people that are interested in my work on that, you can, you know, look through some of my past interviews related to biosecurity and other things. Um, but it's just very, uh, it's very alarming. T- well, it's very telling that in it was in 2016, I think, or 2017, where the, like Flatley's company said that they're, they're going to embark on aggressive five-year plan you know the aggressive five-year plan this is where we're picking up speed now uh to bring genomics out of the research labs and into doctors offices and i think this is this is one of the signs that w- we are changing once upon a time we'd use a company like illumina to check all of these things because they're too complicated for a normal everyday doctor to do but now what they want you to do what they want doctors to be in eventually is to have some form of like a crispr technology style technology where they can do they can manipulate and play around with people's genetics safely in the doctor's office or come for a visit okay let's play around with you and your genetics it is this is a this is a step it, what we're seeing is a step towards a much more futuristic um idea uh, and a really hard to grasp idea of what transhumanism looks like. Right. Well, transhumanism, as I've noted a lot in my work, is essentially the new eugenics. So it combines this idea of of putting machines in your body and sort of what Regina Dugan, head of Welcome Leap, refers to as fixing what she calls the mismatch between human the human body and machines. And then you have this uh, the gene sequencing uh, aspect of it, which is being framed as medicine through things like CRISPR and mRNA injections and DNA injections and all of this stuff, uh, but essentially, um, you know, ties back with that uh, whole idea of of eugenics. And people at the Galton Institute now, the sort of slightly rebranded um, British Eugenics Society, which I think actually after I reported on them, they changed their name again. I think they're called Adelphi <laughs> now, yeah, not <laughs> or something, surprise. claiming like, oh well. Um, we, we, we know we don't like, we promise we don't like eugenics anymore. So we changed our name to the Galton Institute to honor Francis Galton, the guy that invented eugenics. And, uh, so now we're going to rebrand again and call it Adelphi, but Adelphi is the name of the neighborhood where the British Eugenics Society used to meet. So, you know, I mean, it's like they're running out of things to like secretly (laughs) show that they still agree with this stuff, but like, you can see that this whole, uh, medical dictatorship that we've got over the world, uh, it, it's all linked. It's all 
uh, clubs, societies, groups, and and um, and and uh, you know these are clubs which are uh, very similar to things we would have seen in the old day, uh, olden days. You know, you're related to so and so, so you get in this club, and this club rules everything. You know, we're seeing the, the same patterns. And this is one of the things that I, I discover from um, uh, going in history so much with my, my work going through history is that when I was talking about, you know, doctors will eventually have a CRISPR technology. Well, the doctor's office won't change. It'll still be the same old boring looking doctor's office, but slowly the technology will change and it will be exponentially changing roughly. That's how technology goes. It kind of goes exponential and goes up and up and up. And at the same time, the walls don't change. The people don't change. What the people want doesn't change. How the people feel doesn't change. All they're doing is testing on you with new new toys that they've got. Um, and this is what all of these guys are doing. They're in their clubs. They've created their clubs and the societies. And they want to test out all their new gadgets and gizmos on these people who do not matter to them. And that's where we got to understand. When we understand those people don't matter um, uh, we don't matter to those people, then maybe the majority of people on Earth can decide that these people don't matter to us and we can stop listening to them, stop giving them uh, the ability to get away with, with, with things scot-free. They do it all of the time. They can do what they like and they don't have accountability. And that is what Jeremy Farrar has been created into. Jeremy Farrar and the Wellcome Trust has been created into a supposedly non-profit entity that's outside government outside business outside education just it just exists on the side and brings people together well actually it brings companies together actually it covers up massive uh fake uh, uh, uh like it over exaggerates pandemics it over exaggerates everything to get uh these companies and pharmaceutical big pharmaceutical brands get them more business that's what it's all about. It's all guys in clubs using their technologies together to try and uh, take over their part of the world, which in this case is medicine. All right. So I want to get a little more into Welcome Leap really bit because we didn't really get to discuss um, what it views as science worth funding and what it sees as, quote unquote, innovation. And this is relevant because going back to the WHO press release about Farrar becoming chief scientist, it says... Dr. Farrar will oversee the science division, bringing together the best brains in science and innovation from around the world to deliver and develop high quality health services. So what does Farrar think of when he thinks of innovation in science? Well, I would wager that uh, his uh, the projects at Welcome Leap are an example of that. So I mentioned earlier, Regina Dugan, right, is in charge of this with her former deputy at DARPA. Um, Ken Gabriel, I think his name is. And Dugan previously, when she was at Google and Facebook, she was making things like brain machine interfaces, a digital tattoo where you're, uh, that will be on your body and unlock your smartphone, a pill that turns you into your own authentication token, smart clothing, augmented reality stuff. I mean, this is the stuff that, that she's uh, big on. And then her deputy, Ken Gabriel, uh, is one of the leading DARPA guys for microelectrical mechanical systems research, uh, which is directly related to a lot of the stuff that Dugan um, is has been interested in during her time at DARPA and after that time as well. And um, 
I just want to get a little bit into some of the programs that uh, Welcome Leap funds. So I previously wrote about this again in uh, June 2021, um, not that long after it was created. And I think I was the first person to, to report on Welcome Leap because no one has really paid very much attention to the Welcome Trust over the past three years. And I really hope with this appointment of Farrar that begins to change and that changes very quickly so people can realize what we're dealing with here. So um, the first program I wrote about that Welcome Leap was involved with is abbreviated as HOPE, standing for Human Organs, Physiology, and Engineering. It's basically about growing organs and growing uh, living things, growing animals, uh, all sorts of stuff, and using that for a whole variety of purposes, including to replace existing clinical trials. So instead of doing, for example, safety trials on on animals or human beings, these people would grow organs and then just test it on the organ and assume that's how a human body uh, would respond to it, which is obviously a way to cut corners. But we've definitely seen a lot of that over the past three years. Yeah, they they um, another... create corners. They create their own corners so they don't have to cut them. Yeah, I guess so. Um, another program is called Delta Tissue, which was about predicting changes in uh, states of human tissues and is, again, a thing about uh, precision medicine, promoting uh, the use of DNA and RNA gene therapies. And they make uh, it sound people. wonderful. They call it a tissue time machine. Yeah, they they obviously had PR people work on it, but it's all about getting like AI to predict disease in humans. Again, this sort of... Um, pre-crime approach to um, disease and health, right? So if you can be like, well, we think you're going to predict a crime based on your social media history uh, sometime in the next five to 10 years, and we should send you to prison now, you know, you have to trust the algorithm a lot, especially when the algorithm's like, well, uh, you'll probably develop cancer. You don't have cancer now, but you'll probably develop it. So you should do all of this crazy invasive stuff and inject yourself with all of this crazy goo and whatever it's the same yeah. well i mean same mentality there that that the, the problem is with all of this um all of this will succeed if they continue to aim at the young you know well let me you, let me get there because there's yeah. two more programs well three i, I want to just do a quick overview of before we discuss so uh one of the other ones is called multi-channel psych psych being short for psychology there obviously and this focuses to develop uh, non-invasive technology to directly interrogate the human brain state. This can be a non-invasive spinal tap equivalent. Not sure how you do that. Wow. Uh, behavioral or biomarker probes of neural plasticity, single session neural monitoring capabilities. So basically, um, you can uh, read between the lines there and see what this stuff is about. A lot of it is aimed at developing wearables, basically to read um read your mind, for lack of a better term, but also uh, specifically manipulate what they call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, so, you know, a part of the endocrine system. So it, this particular uh, system or axis in the body is a, a negative and positive feedback system, but it regulates stress reactions, immunity, and also quite notably fertility in the human body. Uh, worth pointing out, uh, specifically if you're familiar with uh, some of our past work on Welcome Trust and eugenics stuff. Um, and then the most disturbing programs are focused on little kids and babies. So uh, the most disturbing Welcome Leap program to me is called the First 1000 Days Promoting Healthy Brain Networks. And essentially what this is about, per them, are creating objective, scalable ways to assess a child's cognitive health 
by monitoring the brain development and function of infants and toddlers, allowing practitioners to risk stratify children and predict responses to intervention in developing brains. So basically, uh, they want to develop a model for how a brain should ideally look, and then they want to in, uh, decide what children don't fit that model and then intervene to make children's brains look like that model, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is very messed up, this whole idea of like pruning children's brains to make them all cognitively uh, equivalents of each yeah. other as a way of what they say, you know, equalizing the playing field. But really, you could, I think it's brain clear. communism. You can see, well, I think you can. <laughs> so, all right. Okay. Well, I think you can see how this could be misused, right? And basically, the way it aims to accomplish this is that it wants uh, children to be exposed to from the age, I think, of it's either three or six months um, of it's age. Uh, no, it's, it's free and under. Is what they Jeez. say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's it's stuff like exposing your child to wearable sensors, mm -hmm. wearable uh, EEG eye tracking technology. Um, I mean, these are for babies. Yeah. Um, it's the low best cost for data. mobile sensors. Have them under constant surveillance. Um, if you uh, want data, if you want constant data, which is scientific, their, their scientific modeling relies on constant massive data such a large amount of data and they're tracking their eyes they're tracking kids eyes i mean what what are they doing that for well they'll be tracking everything they'll be tracking their temperature they'll be tracking what they're talking about yeah what they're saying. And, and their goal here because remember this with ferrara's chief scientist at the who and if they get these powers that they want the who that we're going to talk about in a little bit this could be this could become a, a you know become reality a the main goal of this program before 2030 is to have 80 percent of children you know exposed to this technology and this screening process that involves wearables and all of this stuff by 2030 80 percent of kids yeah. and now the guy that created the organization doing this is the guy that's going to be the chief scientist of the who who's and going to decide direction of policy all around because they, they can get the nations or every nation around to sign up to doing this right whether they want it whether the people want it or not this is democracy out the window right and what's particularly disturbing to me also um is that after i wrote that article i didn't think these people could get any sicker uh but not that long after i published that article they announced a new program called in utero where they essentially are applying the same methodology and have the same goals but instead of applying it to infants and children under three years old they are applying it to fetuses the program as you might expect is called in utero measurement and modeling during gestational uh, development. And it's essentially, you know, mobile sensing uh, technologies and, you know, surveilling how your baby's doing. Now, are they looking yeah. after the health of children and babies or are they trying to understand how to create children and babies? Because the next the next stage of the transhuman of transhumanism to grow them, right? Is yeah, to grow them rather yeah. Than, than, and, and to make pregnancy licenses a thing. Well, if you if you look at um, this first 1000 days program at Welcome Leap, what they want to do, like I mentioned earlier, is create a model of the ideal child's brain and then have interventions developed that bring as many children as possible in line with that model. 
It's a homogenization. Unbelievable. Un- unbelievable idea. How, 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 d- I, I can't even I know. Imagine. It's mind boggling. One of the most important and amazing things about having kids is watching them develop into this a person themselves and not influencing that in any negative way, trying to be positive yes. positivity. You, you're, you're handing over again your child's health, complete health and, uh, and, or, uh, everyday functioning over to someone who does not care about humans who proved uh, who have proven over and over again they just don't care about humans yeah people seem i i believe lots of people will hand their children over well here's the thing as head of the world as the chief scientist at the who and if these powers that again we're going to talk about soon are implemented someone like jeremy farrar who sees this type of stuff as innovation that sees pruning child's brains by machine intelligence and having AI shape that kind of stuff for future generations. He sees that as innovation. This is going to be the guy that's setting policy at the WHO. And if these amendments are passed, the WHO will have teeth, i.e. it will have increased sovereignty while nation member member states of the WHO, nation states, have reduced sovereignty in these matters. You are basically giving Jeremy Farrar, a crazy man, a blank check to uh, dictate what you do, not just with your own body, but what happens to your children's bodies. So Mm. this is very significant stuff. And this is why um, I think this podcast today is really important because, I mean, most people think of Jeremy Farrar, like you were, um, we were reading before this podcast uh, in an article by, I think, the Brownstone Institute. They just refer and criticize Farrar as a lockdown advocate. Yeah, yeah, and he's he, a lot he more ev- than that. Yeah, he did everything. I mean, he, he, yeah, he advised lockdowns. He also advised all of the financing and the response. And he's he was the central figure. Fauci, um, witty, were uh, the, the uh, American and British people dealing uh, supposed to be at the top were told to go and report to Farrar. This is the guy who's doing everything. He's he's also the same guy who in twenty twenty is saying that China is setting a new standard for outbreak response and deserves all our fa- thanks. And, and they are the model for the future. This is this, this is a guy who people really he what I find amazing about Ferrars is hubris. He seems to he knows that anybody who knows is you know knows anything about medicine knows what he's doing. Everybody knows who knows. And all of the rest of the people are going to get injected. And he's got a little smile on his face, a little duper's delight, a little grin, because he knows what he's doing. And every time I read an article and I listen to his quotes, he seems like he's detached from the reality of where he is. And when, when I read out that piece earlier where he talks about, oh, I did these things I've never done before, I don't believe that. I just think that he had, they had to do that because everybody was watching them all of a sudden. I think that normally they're acting in these uh, ways uh, without accountability and doing things underhand and dealing with things behind the scenes. And no one's watching. So they don't have to have burner phones and they don't have to have clandestine meetings. Their meetings and normal meetings to us would be clandestine if we looked at them. Uh, and these are the people who are in charge of your children's health who want to put things... Because this, like, uh, some of the technology they're talking about is pumping things into your body, uh, your child's body and your baby's body that will go around all of their body and map out the insides so they can read the insides of what they look like to homogenize your child. 
this is beyond yeah, well they frame it as an effort to also the same technology will be used to cognitively augment your child but remember th- these are darpa people that are developing this and darpa people also frame a lot of their transhumanist endeavors framed as healthcare in similar terms oh this is this could be used to augment people but if you also read enough of crap darpa people have said over the years as i have and some other people have as well um you will know that they have also said that really um all of these technologies are dual use anything that can augment can also do the opposite and can degrade <laughs> right um and basically be weaponized to that effect so how many yeah. how many experiments on the entire population of the earth do you think they can do before they destroy the entire population of the earth i i really don't want to think about it because i just think this stuff is uh so sick and um i mean if someone like farrar gets the ability to basically just unilaterally decide what what people have to do to their bodies um you know it's obviously not going to go well no 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 i i i can't understand how someone like him is allowed to exist without any sort of accountability um is allowed is is not is is not in jail basically it's not being investigated and found to have been a fraudster already because <laughs> because in a, a real world in, in a real fair world that would happen but we don't have that and we we document exactly these sort of people who run roughshod over uh, civilized society. This is not, this is uncivilized. This is treating people like meat bags who they can test on is uncivilized. This is not civilized society. Right. So I think it's time we turn to, turn to the stuff going on at the World Health Organization right now. So um, I want to give credit first and, and foremost to James Raguski, whose uh, work I was not familiar with until relatively recently. I'm not really familiar with him or his background, unfortunately, but he seems to be the uh, person raising the most alarm about what is going on at the World Health Organization right now. So um, from January 9th until the 13th, and uh, just for reference for those listening, we're recording this on on the 13th. Um, This is the time during which the International Health Regulations Review Committee are conducting face-to-face meetings in Geneva, Switzerland, not that far from, you know, Davos, Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum is hosting its first uh, in-person annual meeting. uh, Well, they all intermingle, so I suppose it won't be, they can, they can jump in and out of each other's uh, meetings. Yes. So, um, very true. So anyway, uh, this particular review committee, what they are doing is to finalize, uh, the proposed amendments to the international health regulations. You may remember that not that long ago, there was an attempt to bring about these internal international health regulations, the amendments, but it was struck down, uh, by a vote of who member states most, uh, significantly, from a block of African countries who said no, uh, props to them, but relatively recently as well, and we'll get into this in a second, the World Health Organization and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were part of a new dark winter style simulation called Catastrophic Contagion about a horrible virus that uh, specifically attacks Africa and uh, specifically children in Africa and how they need uh, the WHO to have all these unilateral powers in order for a bunch of their kids not to die. That was basically the uh, the message of that simulation. Anyway, back to uh, the World Health Organization. So again, these meetings uh, that have gone on this week, 
no live stream. There will be no public comment period. Um, they don't really care about anyone's um, opinion, I guess. Uh, they just report only to the director gen- general, uh, Lord Tedros himself. And then uh, ostensibly this is going to be voted on in 2024. But because of the certain deadlines uh, that have been set up, uh, Raguski notes that it's very possible that they may instead vote on this stuff much sooner than expected as a way to sort of preempt protest or criticism and and have it voted on uh, the uh, World Health Assembly meeting in May of this year. They very well could. So this is why it's very important to cover this stuff. Quite amazing. We're going to preempt the protesters by definitely causing protests. Well, they're saying they're going to do it in 2024, but if they have enough time to do it now and then avoid people preparing that oppose it, you know, mm-hmm. not give them time to prepare. It's yeah, those it, it seems like it's, something they do. Yeah, huh? <laughs> and it's those moments that make us, uh, again, like I say, a civilized society or not. You can't, you can't say you're civilized if you're not <clears throat> giving yeah, everybody an ability to have a voice, an ability to, to, to speak up against something. And none of this, if everybody knew the facts, none of this would have happened. None of this would have been. No, no one would have a COVID vaccine in them right now. No one. Zero people on earth. And what's really interesting about what you're talking about, the um, uh, saying stuff, catastrophic contagion. They do it on purpose. They, they've made it a tongue twister on pers- purpose for me. Uh, the, the catastrophic contagion um, uh, simulations. Now, it's obvious and it's clear that Africa did not go with the COVID narrative. No, it was the not. only place, and oh, what? Guess what? They've they, they've not had a, a problem with it, have they? But there were five. So COVID didn't really hit the African continent, right? The way yeah. it allegedly hit everywhere else. But you did, oddly enough, have about five or six heads of state all die in a very short mm-hmm. time span. And interestingly enough, all heads of state that didn't want to do a lot of this biosecurity stuff uh, recommended by the WHO and ostensibly by Farrar, who was, uh, you know, even though he wasn't chief scientist at the time, he was the, according to the WHO themselves, the key guy on COVID science and financing of the response. I, I think that if we want to know where we're going to be in the future and how we're going to be treated in the future by these people, then we should watch Africa over the next two years. Because there is going to be some form of what we could call just simply vengeance uh, wrought upon those people because they didn't get into line when they needed to get into line. And a lot of these people um, do not care about Africans. They do not care about Africans until they proved it. Just look at the Welcome Trust history in Africa. It'll be very clear who cares about Africans. Same, Same with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's important then uh, to see exactly what powers the WHO is attempting to give itself and what will be voted on either in this May or if we want to believe them Who next year. Is your God now. Go on. Yeah. OK. So one of the most uh, talked about, perhaps, amendments is a change to the following line. So the line originally read. The implementation of these regulations shall be with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons. That whole last line about dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of person is gone now. It's been <laughs> replaced 
Uh, so it's now reads, the implementation of these regulations shall be based on the principles of equity, mm. inclusivity, coherence, and in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibilities of the state's parties, taking into consideration their social and economic development. So you don't no throw dignity. You don't throw di the word differentiating <laughs> into any type of uh, co well, this policy is this... or contract. No, no, it... no, but it's happening a lot now. I'm sure you've seen it, yeah. you know, from Rishi Sunak's, uh, you know, uh, statements as as UK prime minister saying stuff like, UK oh, well, we have to do more because we're, you know, uh, a more economically developed country. So we have to, you know, give all our money away to these countries and these yeah. causes and this and this because, you know, we have a different level of responsibility than less uh economically developed countries even though he's basically imploding the economy yeah um, yeah but that's i mean <laughs> i i predicted exactly that back in in july it's clear that rishi sunak was the guy who's going to come in and he's going to start organizing for the banks to uh bankrupt yeah he's a everything. he's a bank guy and yeah, that's why um, he wasn't he, voted in he was placed in quite a disgust i mean from from a point of a british person it's quite disgusting and it's exactly the reason why people like Jeremy Farrar get away with what they get away with is that that's the power we've power structure we've got. Right. So but anyway, these changes highlight, you know, dignity, human rights and fundamental freedoms go out the window when it comes to the implementation of these regulations. Yeah. So Chief Scientist Jeremy Farrar uh, can be like, well, I think these things have to happen in order to respond to public health emergency X. And those responses do not have to respect human rights or fundamental freedoms or dignity of people. Instead, it's about equity, i.e. treating all people the same. So, so uh, everyone's got to get the vaccine. <laughs> right? yeah. So that's basically what the equity and inclusivity part means. Coherence just means that they're clearly communicating what you're being forced to do. And then, of course, the differentiated responsibilities, there'll be different standards for developing and developed countries um, for certain things, probably to do with financing. Um, okay, so the other important changes are about the powers that the Director General, Lord Tedros, will receive. So it, the additions say things like the Director General, on the basis of information received, may determine at any time to issue an intermediate public health alert immediately after the determination of a public health emergency of international concern under article 12 the director general shall make an immediate assessment of availability and affordability of required health products and make recommendations including an allocation mechanism the who shall develop an allocation plan for health products so as to ensure equitable access to people of all state parties upon request of the WHO, state parties shall ensure the manufacturers within their territory supply the requested quantity of health products to the WHO or other state parties as directed by the WHO in a timely manner, blah, blah, blah. And this directly ties into um, another amendment uh, made on, on that, same, uh, the, that same group of pages that says uh, state parties um, recognize the World Health Organization as the guidance and coordinating authority of international public health response during public health emergencies of international concern and undertake, agree to, uh, follow whose recommendations in their international public health response. Okay, so let's pause for a second and break that down. So state parties, member states of the WHO, national nation states, recognize that WHO uh, 
guides and coordinates international public health response during public health emergencies, and they have to follow, they agree to follow the World Health Organization's recommendations, whatever they are, as it relates to that public health emergency. And that public health emergency can be declared willy-nilly by the Director General. So Director General Tedros decides, "Mm, I think I'm going to declare a public health alert, uh, and it's going to be a public health emergency of international concern, ruh-roh. And then from that, uh, states have to do whatever the WHO recommends and who develops those recommendations. Well, it's about to be Jeremy Farrar. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. all of these, all of these, um, anything that gets implemented has to work. Yeah, it has to have uh, a function that, that everybody gets on board. So they scare people with another virus. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think this is again an uh, example of their hubris. Their their great hubris they believe that they've now found a way to convince everybody that they're going to die or they should pump the or they if they don't get pumped full of their products their medical products um but they've used up all of their chips over the pandemic they've used up every single chip they have they have to um now convince people again before the pandemic edelman pr the the uh, right hand guys uh, PR firm for for well sixty to seventy percent of the businesses around the world and of course uh, uh, Richard Edelman uh, being the right hand man of uh, Klaus Schwab and being really closely linked with the World Economic Forum they were saying before the pandemic that they they had increased the amount of people who um, trusted in the media again it had gone down to minus eighty percent. A negative rating, minus 80%, 80% of people didn't trust what was going on in the mainstream media. And just before the pandemic, they managed to increase that through all of their tools of creating political crisis and creating fake fake news all over the place. They managed to increase that to about um, uh, minus 60%. So only 60% of people found that the tr- trusted the news, but that was more than the 80%, so that's better. Um, and now it's gone back down again. Because people have been lied to. And now people all around are watching people fall over, uh, get ill, uh, die. And, you know, when this happened before with vaccines, when this has happened in the past, it's meant that the uptake of new vaccines has been really low and that people do not listen to medical authorities anymore for quite a long period. Because if it happens in your generation... You're not going to believe them all of a sudden when they tell you the next time. If they tell you in two weeks, oh, we got another virus. I c- we got to get pump, pump this vaccine quick. Let's all get vaccines. It's not going to be like the last time. They had Im- they had drive. They had impetus. They, they, they got all of these mainstream media characters. They used all of their chips. And now they don't have any of those bargaining chips well, left. Well, I don't know, because there's a reason why they're trying to get these new powers. And I think it's so they don't have to really worry. Yes, they can force it upon people. That's my, that is one of my points. Yeah, we're we're at think... what, like the fifth, sixth booster is like a 5% uptake compared to the, what, 90% yeah, of the first. Mm-hmm. So you can see that's what happens every time. Now, it's a generational thing pandemics are so rare and epidemics are so rare and they try and push this thing or these things on you so rarely because they can't do it very easily people don't just instantly go oh i've just left that pandemic i'm gonna trust you now you just cheated me obviously out of that in that last one they're not going to do that they are going to uh say no and there's going to be resistance so they have to do it by implementing policies that dictate to the people what they have to have inside them 
Right. So let's go back to the, some of these amendments. So I just want to point out, too, that uh, not only do, do they take all these new powers for themselves, uh, no need to worry about human rights and fundamental freedoms anymore um, over at the World Health Organization, uh, because those things get in the way of public health, obviously. Um, so they're also setting up frameworks for specific things. And these are what they call health certificates and passenger locator forms. And essentially, mm -hmm. this is really a framework for um, vaccine passports. So um, passenger locator forms, it says documents containing uh, information concerning traveler destination should be produced in digital form, ideally, uh, with paper form as a residual option. So right away, they're trying to eliminate what we saw in COVID. There we, wasn't we know all from... digital. They are trying to make it all digital. Um, and we then know says, that this doesn't work. That, that that all digital is is what they're gonna ask for, and there'll be no paper uh, allowed. This, no, that's what I'm saying. The, yeah. the amendment makes it so that it's essentially no paper allowed. That it's, it has to be digital. So mm -hmm. this time around, there's not going to be a paper option, and that it will be used for contact tracing, um, and that such documents will be recognized and accepted by all who member parties. Right, and then you have health certificates which they say health documents may, may be produced in digital or paper form uh, subject to the approval of the requirements, um, uh, blah, 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 about technical requirements and stuff um, and how they uh, can will be protected against abuse and falsification. So you can't make false vaccine passports anymore. Um, and all of this stuff, there's like, you know, creating international standards that mm -hmm. will be recognized and accepted Globalism. by all parties creating, for the vaccine passport. Yeah, so, creating globalist structures right underneath us. Right. So not all vaccine passports this time around were digital, were they? No. Uh, like in the U.S., it was like this little card that was produced by HHS that was like a physical card that was written on by the person that gave the vaccine. Uh, in some places, it was digital, like Chile, for example. I think uh, in the NHS, uh, it was as well, but may have had a paper option. Um, but, you know, essentially, this is trying to create an international framework so that it's all digital, again, like the passenger locator stuff. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have been talking about for a long time uh, that vaccine passports are a segue to digital ID, and you see that uh, again here. And it, of course, says a little bit more about health certificates um, where it refers to specifically vaccine or some sort of treatment, uh, digital or paper certificates um, should be used. Um, it makes traveling almost impossible. Um, well, th that's the goal. You're not going. The idea is to basically centralize and standardize um, these types of um, documents. Mm -hmm. Next time there's a public health emergency of international concern. It's, it's, it's about doing the old, uh, it's an old trick. It's creating so much bureaucracy that you feel completely overwhelmed. And that when you try and, I mean, for, for I, I had a couple of experiences, a few experiences of traveling across the world uh, through COVID, um, from, from the start of COVID. And there was, when you got to a, a, a point where they wanted to digital something from you, an airport or or whatever wanted something digital from you there was no way out but there was no paper alternative there's no way to print a paper alternative there's no way to have it you're just you're just sitting there like hoping uh, i remember being in one line where there was this uh old lady she must have been in her six her 60s and they were refusing to let her on because she couldn't fill out this document that was required by chile because she was just too old and no one would help her fill it out so she was sitting on the floor just crying and everybody was just walking past her that's your that's your future. Pay for your flight. 
you don't you don't get your money back. You're just gonna sit on the floor at the airport and cry. You're not going anywhere. <sighs> yeah, it's 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 obviously a bleak future if this gets through. Um, some of the other things I want to add really quick. Um, is that state parties are allowed to uh, basically disclose your personal data where essential for the purposes of assessing and managing public health risks. Well, Peter Thiel will like all that. Uh, yeah. Well, for people that don't know, Peter Thiel's Palantir uh, had, had a major role in managing the data in the NHS and also the HHS in the UK and the US. Basically, all the COVID data was, you know, aggregated and data managed by them. Uh, anyway... Um, something that's also particularly relevant, uh, that the WHO uh, plans to strengthen its capacities to counter misinformation and disinformation at the global level. <laughs> that's us! That's oh, us! Quickly! Sounds like more censorship's <laughs> on the way. And this time it'll be uh, a lot worse than last time. Yeah. So if you thought it was bad last time, and if you think Elon Musk's Twitter will save you from Jeremy Farrar <laughs> and the World Health Organization, I would, uh, no, it's, it's, um... Let's oppose this stuff, yeah? And then uh, the last one, they expand the definition of what constitutes a public health emergency of international concern so that it can now include uh, clusters of severe acute pneumonia oh. of unknown cause uh, oh. so they can declare this new global pandemic when they don't know what's causing it. Like it could be the vaccines that they give. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, or antibody-dependent enhancement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. And then also clusters of... Other severe infections in which human-to-human -human tr transmission cannot be ruled out. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I don't know. It it seems like a recipe for uh, no good, crazy stuff. This is this is why I feel that it, they, they can only become more dystopian. They can almost they they'll have to do everything by uh, diktat. There's no way that you can um, keep going along this route and people will be on board and putting someone it's really interesting they put someone and it's hubris from the organization and they put someone with so much hubris at the top of the organization jeremy farrar and his guys think they're not going to get any kickback the people aren't going to point at them and say look at the loads of things that you did this is a guy normally if someone covers up a, 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 a pandemic uh, um, be, uh, and a, a, a virus being released from the lab and causing a pandemic. Normally, you would expect that that person would go a little bit low-key afterwards and a little bit quiet. But Jeremy Farrar uh, gets put on top... Uh, slip of the tongue. Yeah? Jeremy Farrar gets put on top of the World Health Organization. The, the, it's it just seems like they they are what we would say balls out now with what they're doing they they do not care they do not have any fear they know that the future is going to be major resistance to all of this and it is only going to get quicker it's going to get more extreme and for that they need the best man in on in uh their world on top of that and that is at the moment jeremy farrar someone who's been brought up and trained by some of the most uh influential i mean uh, i didn't speak about him enough earlier but really important roy anderson um uh, and and of course uh, uh richard sykes two of the people who helped farrar to this area well they were once upon a time they would they would be desperate to be in Farrar's situation and have that youth now to be able to do what Farrar's going to do because Farrar is taking their ideas on further and that is uh, dictating to people what is wrong with them and making it up if they can't find the evidence.
and forcing it upon everybody, forcing drugs upon everybody, forcing uh, therapeutics beyond everybody, but more than anything, forcing experimentation upon human beings, including infants, on everybody. Yeah, so let, let, let's recap then, since uh, we're you know coming up to the end of the podcast. So essentially, Jeremy Farrar, over his career, has worked for the Wellcome Trust, an offshoot of the organization that uh, was responsible for AZT um, during the HIV-AIDS crisis uh, that killed lots of people and, of course, tarnished the Wellcome Burroughs Wellcome name. And then um, this figure, Richard Sykes, uh, sort of oversees uh, the spinoff of the Wellcome Trust and GlaxoSmithKline and all of this, but they sort of come from the same... He, he also, at the same time, to just quickly put in mm-hmm. there, Sykes also rearranges the entire way that um, all scientific papers are accessed and produced and uh, the database they're stored on. He organized all of that in the late 80s and 90s. Ah, fascinating. Uh, I think Robert Maxwell had a hand in some of that shaping of, <laughs> yeah, <probably laughs> of scientific journals as well. I'm actually not kidding about them. That's real. So anyway... Um, uh, Jeremy Farrar, throughout the rest of career, does things where he's sent by the uh, University of Oxford to different epidemics and pandemics. In some cases, like the uh, what you noted earlier, he uh, essentially goes against the WHO and says, oh, well, there actually is a pandemic here, and it wasn't there. <laughs> and fear-mongering was used by the U.S. national security state to benefit themselves, and of course, Farrar benefits, and a lot of these people who seem to be wrong all the time, like Neil Ferguson whose models are always insanely he's, accurate, he's, but somehow he's, he's still employed. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. He knows he's wrong, so he's something else. He's not a wrong. Well, that's what I'm saying. These people are repeatedly wrong, uh, but they're kept there for a reason, and it's yeah. because them being wrong is benefiting somebody, right? Yeah. So these are people who, in other words, are willing to lie to further specific agenda, with that agenda being this biosecurity surveillance state that leads us in this transhumanist era, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's essentially what Farrar's career shows. I would really encourage people to look at your article, Johnny, called The Welcome Five. We'll have links in the show notes. And also my past reporting on Unlimited Hangout about Welcome Leap specifically. So you can really see what this guy is capable of. And I, I do just want to point out, too, that among the top funders to the World Health Organization is the UK government and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, works very closely with the Wellcome Trust, loves a lot of stuff that they do. Right. And of course, uh, the Wellcome Trust is very much uh, very much shapes a lot of health policy uh, with respect to the government of the United Kingdom. So it's interesting that you have them being listed, at least right now, as one of the top funding governments of the WHO, at least on their website. They've, they've really changed how they break down their funding, uh, but a lot of money from there um, specifically. So, you know, maybe it's possible that's how Farrar got this particular position. And, uh, you know, the people that are responsible for Farrar's rise, you know, through Farrar are going to essentially be running global health policy in a way that they've never been able to before. What we're seeing here is the emergence of basically uh, medical fascism at the global level mm-hmm. in a way uh, where nation states uh, will lack the sovereignty to uh, say no to the dictates. We've never seen anything um, like this before. Yes. And uh, if you're having a guy that's willing to, you know, trying to get 80% of kids hooked up to like a bunch of insane, invasive, 
mind mapping technology to try and like trigger the singularity and like all of this other crazy stuff and create like a, you know, cognitively homogenous uh, group of humans and potentially through gene editing, a lot of other crazy stuff as well, which is also associated with Welcome Leap. You know, it's it's a very uh, uh, disturbing scenario we have before us. And of course, um, it's been clear to me for some time that there's going to be some sort of crisis needed to force people to agree to adopt a lot of this transhumanist technology. It's no coincidence, I think, that a lot of this transhumanist technology for several years has been framed as healthcare. One of the past podcasts we did, Johnny, was actually titled about, uh, you know, reframing eugenics as healthcare. And that's essentially what we have going on um, here still. But there has to be some sort of situation created where people are forced to adopt um, technology, invasive technology on or in their bodies they otherwise would not. And it seems like what we have before us are the is essentially the foundation for that type of event to take place. Yeah. And um, I think people really need to be very cognizant of that and consider um, what you will do to oppose this because it's very, you know, um, I think essentially, you know, if you're in the place, a place like the U.S., you know, uh, resistance is not going to come from the federal government. Uh, the best you're probably going to be able to do is, you know, affect something at the local or state level uh, where a state uh, legislature or a, a, some sort of local council uh, says that, you know, World Health Organization dictates, uh, you know, can't be unilaterally imposed on your community or your state without, you know, some sort of debate or something mm -hmm. well it's know? got to be some form of effort to stop globalist agendas and policies being introduced on any local level and there needs to be some rethinking of how we um hold our politicians and our representatives accountable because it's not working well obviously it's not working but i think the response is obviously going to be something that's decentralized if you make you know one central entity that gets any traction they're going to focus all their attention on that and destroy it but numerous decentralized efforts to do stuff locally i think is going to be a lot harder for them to tackle and i think you know based on what i've seen over the past several years that seems to be the most you know effective way out of it the more resilient you can make your community to this stuff whatever that means for you you know is is where this ultimately needs to go i know that that you would like to see you know french revolution style guillotine <laughs> stuff whatever but you know it may not necessarily well, uh be that way sooner rather than later yeah, you what know what i, I mean really, what, what i really want to see is people come to their sense and people think about things and people think about where we're going so so you know i i, I though i do joke about uh the return of the gallows and guillotines um I do think there's a, there's there is a point where people will break and say no more, and so that will happen if yeah. if if they keep pushing, the people don't just keep accepting it. It gets less and less people, and their agenda is really focused and really hardcore, and is really invasive. And some of the people who are involved in it are really powerful people, and there's people who are getting dirty with their associations as well. So one thing I'll just say near the end of this is that in them the Welcome Five article. Um, I, I researched five people who were connected with the Wellcome Trust in the past, including Jeremy Farrar, uh, Roy, uh, Roy Anderson, Neil Ferguson, and uh, um, Richard Sykes. And I, I look at a few others too. But what you find connects nearly all of these people 
is their memberships of certain societies and certain organisations. In their case, it is the Royal Society in the UK, which was made up to be a place where lots of scientists and, uh, and medical people and uh, come together uh, and have their little club. But really, it's a roundtable group where they can separate actions from the politicians, and the politicians go there and ask the guys there, who are members of the Royal Society, to go and organise all of these people to do these things. So it's a way that breaks out. If we can see, if we can expose those parts, those important conduits, those important cogs that make this these, these stuff work without accountability for these bad actors, then we can bring the whole thing down. We can bring the whole thing down, because their structure relies on really significant and important important conduits like like uh funding conduits for, for, for the cia through universities and stuff you take away that conduit you stop the program running when kissinger's international seminar was running as soon as it was exposed kissinger's international seminar stopped and they had to yeah but that that else. depended on journalists exposing it yeah right? it, it, so it, they're it, they're planning to censor a lot more so i think people should get a lot wiser about media consumption yeah. Do not rely on social media for your news. Invest yeah, in something like an RSS feed or some sort of other means of accessing uh, the sites you like and, and sort of aggregating uh, that information communicate in a way that is not dependent on big tech. Yeah, communicate with a range of people with all different views and get a load of different ideas and a load of different forms of evidence and make up your own mind based on everything, not based on only what certain people tell sure, you. If you but... ever get told in life certain people know better than the rest of you, then those certain people are not to be trusted. That's a rule you can put over life. If you have someone who says, no, we know about this and you shouldn't listen to anyone else, as soon as they say you shouldn't listen to anyone else, they're liars. So the last point I want to bring up here too is that I do not think that all of this would be happening right now. The World Health Organization power grab this uh, catastrophic contagion simulation looking at the era, era the, the main continent in the world that didn't play ball with the COVID stuff um, and Jeremy Farrar's appointment. All of this to me suggests that what we saw over the past three years, they plan to do again. Mm -hmm. And they plan to have learned from their mistakes and they plan to have the big guns out this time. Yeah. Okay. So we can safely assume that that will not happen until after these amendments are approved. But after that point, and once Ferrar is in, in this position, watch these people like hawks. There is going to be something. They are going to do this again because otherwise they are not going to get uh, to all of the different, you know, go remember, this is all about remaking the world. This is not just about remaking health policy. That is a key part of this because a lot of this technology needed to run the smart grid and all of this stuff, they are forcing through and into our world and into you through uh, health policy. That's how they're getting a foot in the door, but it, this is about remaking every aspect of our society. That's what Agenda yep. 2030 is all about. And one of those sustainable development goals that compose 2030, uh, number three, is about healthcare. But this is this is the way that it's being, you know, it's, you know, how if we you, let them, it's game over. How, how do you cause a... Uh, uh, uh great reset of any type of industry or any type of uh, in economy that you, you can see what they're doing now they're going to have to crash it they're going to have to make it so it's unmanageable and so then they offer you a new system and medical may be the same they 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 will push this until ever they're already talking about it 
yeah. a headline I saw a couple days ago uh, preparing for the imminent collapse of the U.S. healthcare system. And then They've been beware. saying in the U.K. for a long time that NHS is near collapse. Yeah. In Chilean media, they talk about, oh, hotels are overstretched. They have, uh, hotel, beware hospitals have been overstretched. Beware yeah. your saviors. Because in the same club, in that royal society alongside uh, uh, Farrar and, and uh, Sykes and people and, and these manipulators behind the scenes, are also uh, a, a rare American is allowed in. In in this case, it's only a couple. Bill Bryson's in there, but also Elon Musk is a member of the Royal Society. Understand that they all flock together and that they will give you your saviors as they give you your yeah, disease. Yeah, well, really quick, talking about, you know, how I think Farrar is going to, in this position as chief scientist at The Who, is going to try and force, you know, transhumanist tech on people. They also need people... Uh, that oppose the who and, and, you know, their policies and this power grabs. They need uh, to sell that same tech to them, but from a different angle, right? And I would argue that someone like Elon Musk, who's yep. been very much primed and set up for this personal savior role over a series of years, and I talked about this on a recent panel uh, with with Derek Bros, James Corbett, Ryan Christian, and, and, and Jason Burmes, um, you know, that's essentially what's happened yep. here. And you have him, you know, selling transhumanist, uh, tech under the same metrics that the same narrative uh, that that is used to promote them by people like Regina Dugan, the head of Welcome Leap, and mm-hmm. and, and by DARPA and stuff. Even they say, Klaus oh, this Schwab, is the, I mean, it's a healthcare justification. Yeah. How does Elon Musk uh, uh, justify Neuralink? Oh, it's going to help the blind see and the paralyzed walk, and that's how yeah. he justifies Beware it. But he also saviors. talks about commercializing it, and everyone's going to have one. You don't want to yeah. be left behind when everyone's gotten the chip in the brain and the upgrade and da so, you know, I really see that they're trying to sell this from multiple angles. And ultimately, it comes down to how many people are going to be willing to sacrifice their convenience and their comfort um, to say no to this agenda and this technology. That. It stops. Do not let them do this stuff to you and your children. Full stop. Yeah, it's uh, and, that, by and that's essentially the way out. If you but, don't know how to organize or do anything in your local community, uh, that's the red line. Ag- agreed. But they will make a necessity. Now, this time... Well, they'll try to. Yeah, yeah. well, this time they released uh, a fairly uh, minor, or released, or at least released from a lab, was a minor uh, disease. In the future, these guys could release something really catastrophic and spread it around as they uh, as they see fit to cause as much fear. And all of these... I told you so from these people who are in control. Now you've got to listen to us. And that's what I see in the future. Well, I think, you know, my advice would be, um, you know, a lot of this they can't accomplish without having a lot of people really scared and afraid. So fear should be your enemy. And you should also, um, again, keep your kids and yourselves away from all this experimental crap because a lot of it comes under the transhumanist umbrella at the end of the day and if you don't want uh, that transhumanist agenda 2030 future for you and your family and your community and more broadly speaking the world this is this is the time to oppose it the time is now so again i would encourage everyone to follow up a lot on uh, on what the who is doing with these amendments um who jeremy farrar is please consider uh, looking into the welcome trust more if you haven't already um because as as you know, Johnny and I have mentioned uh, before, there is a lack of reporting by independent media on the Welcome Trust. 
and on Jeremy Farrar, and he is poised to have a lot of power if these amendments are rammed through, which seems increasingly likely. Yeah. So uh, please, I, I would urge those watching, if you haven't looked at or listening, if you haven't before, definitely look at the show notes on this one. Take the time to read it and understand what we're facing here, because this is a global biosecurity issue. If you did not like the past three years, it's time to get prepared and understand who these people are, what they have done, and what they are likely to do again, and how to prepare yourself and your family. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, final thoughts, John? No, no, I, I would say that, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's well said. You, you, we, we, those who, I don't want to limit to only those who have children, those who have loved ones, those who care about well, sure, anybody yeah. in the world. I mean, I want to see my children get by without being compromised. And that's what I feel the modern medical system and these actors do to our children and to us. They compromise us, so we'll need to be hooked up to medicines for the rest of our life. And we all know it. We all know that. So, so don't just yeah. don't fall for it. They see you as a data set, as a biological computer, uh, and that's how they that's how they view everyone that's not in their little club, right? Yeah. And they will treat you like that, as a expendable, room. and you can be experimented on. That's why you see in the, the WHO regulations, dignity, human rights, fundamental freedoms. No, it's about treating everyone the same and everyone is a slave, is a serf to these guys at the top. And they're going to do everything in their power to make it so. And uh, it's obviously incumbent on all of us to oppose them. Well, all right, John, thanks for giving me uh, a significant portion of your time today. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Where can people uh, follow your work and support you? And what do you have coming up? Well, um, I, you can find me at johnnyvedmore.com. Of course, I'm writing on Unlimited Hangout. Um, and I'm also on fungimonkey.com, which is a lot of my media stuff. Um, there's loads of interesting articles coming up. Uh, we just released um, uh, a piece on the German Marshall Fund, um, uh, which is a, a real interesting organization that kind of, the piece kind of links up um, the Henry Kissinger's International Seminar and uh, and the Young Global Leaders Program in the way of leadership courses that, that come out of especially Harvard. Um, I got loads of stuff coming up that's really interesting. Some some things I'm working on at the moment are some of the most interesting things I've ever worked on in my life. Uh, times as they get more dystopian, get more interesting for us as journalists. That's an that's a yeah, fortunate byproduct. Also increases of, of our workload. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. so I I just encourage people, you know. Uh, go out and read don't only read the one thing read everything um never trust anybody who tells you not to look in a certain place and only to look at where they go we want to encourage people to look at everything make up your own mind and uh thanks for having me on yeah absolutely so i think this is um, a very important timely episode so i would encourage those listening if you thought this information was important please share it around um because we definitely have algorithms and censorship working uh against us and as we just talked about earlier today, uh, next time the WHO declares a public health emergency of international concern, uh, that censorship will probably get a lot worse than it was last time. So uh, try and prepare yourself for that. If you're interested in things like RSS feeds or how to follow this podcast or unlimited hangout articles, by that means we have info about that on the website. We can put that in the show notes as well. Uh, a big thank you, as always, to uh, supporters of Unlimited Hangout and people that subscribe to this podcast. You keep 
uh, my articles and Johnny's articles uh, coming as they do. And of course, this podcast up and running as well. Uh, And we thank you so much for that. And yeah, that's it for now. And we'll catch you all in the next episode. Thanks.